2 Timothy and then the, the second chapter. We were there last week, and we will be in several places of Scripture, actually, this week. Um, but I wanted to remind us of where we were and kind of set the stage for that, and then uh, hopefully answer the question of how we are to make disciples. And, um, and then we'll wrap up this, this short series. Next week, Pastor Mike will be preaching. Uh, my wife and I will actually be out of town. Normally, we go see my parents at Christmas time, and because of Nook's surgery on the 19th, we're not going to be able to go to, to Michigan. So we're actually going to spend Thanksgiving with my parents, which we're sad because we won't be here for the, uh, the uh, Thanksgiving dinner here. But according to Chad, I wasn't of any use anyway. So uh, it's not like I'm, I, I'm, I'm bailing out on, on any big duties. Um, so, um, you know, Chad is the friend that you want to have because you can never be arrogant around that guy. Um, you can figure that piece out. Um, and I really and sincerely do appreciate Chad. But um, I think I was trying to think, of, I think this is the first time in about 20 years since um, I will be able to have Thanksgiving with my parents at their place. So we're really looking forward to that. So we'll miss being here, but, but we're going to be with, with my parents uh, in Michigan. And uh, uh, so next week, Pastor Mike will be preaching and looking forward to that. Then after that, we start Advent. And uh, we make some preparations for that. Uh, Sue Miller's been helping write the Advent readings, and, and we're, we're looking forward to uh, this Advent season as it comes upon us. But today, let's finish this series. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 1, it says, then, then, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Last week, we looked at two realities that every believer must face, and that is this, is that you have heard the gospel. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what we talked about last week is that in God's providence and his abundant providence and mercy to you, you have heard the gospel. And not only did you hear it, but you believed it. And that, again, was God's mercy and providence upon your life. And then we said that, more to the point here, because that's more implicit in the text here, but the explicit part of the text is that we are entrusted with the gospel. And that means we are to make disciples. We're entrusted to do something with it. We're entrusted to take this, this gift that God has given to us in his abundant mercy, his abundant grace, and he's given it to you and to me if we're believers in Christ. And he says, here, I'm entrusting this to you. I want you to take care of it. And it doesn't mean just put it in a trophy case and, and put it on there so that people can see it. It says, no, you need to give this to this gospel to every other person around the world. And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 28, as we've looked at that text many times, we may end up there sometime during this sermon today. But I'll tell you this. It says, it says uh, uh, Jesus has all authorities given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. That really is the mission of our church. You know, we started this year, 2016, of trying to have something that we were going to focus on throughout the year, and we've been going through, and this is the reason why we did the, we started the Sermon on the Mount series, and we're going to get back into that in January. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten about it, but we're going to get back into that series, but that was the whole reason in the beginning is we wanted to talk about what is a disciple, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, and we can't make disciples if we don't know what a disciple is. 
Sermon on the Mount is a very powerful text of Scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, because it starts with saying who's in the kingdom and ends with who's not in the kingdom. And as I've said before, both are equally shocking. And so we have this, 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 this mission that's been given to us that if you're a believer in Christ, we are to make disciples and we are to give the gospel and we've been entrusted to do that. Now the question comes, is like, well, how do we do that then? How is it that we can make disciples of all nations? What, are, what is the strategy that we should be employing? And, and many people differ on that. In fact, for a class right now, I'm reading a book for my next class that's coming up in January, and, and that the whole part of the book is basically talking about uh, different, different strategies in um, missiological work. And there's different opinions about that. So what... what what are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to do this? Well, I'm going to submit to you that this morning there's going to be three ideas, and there's not, nothing on the screen. Um, so you're just going to have to, have to listen and, and uh, doodle to your heart's content. Uh, but making disciples is relational work, it's spiritual work, and it's sacrificial work. That's what we're going to look at this morning. It's relational work, it's spiritual work, and it's sacrificial work. First of all, making disciples is relational work. The, big, the best way to be involved in daily disciple-making is simply to live life together. I, I can't overstate that, I, I, and it's going to sound so simplistic when I, when I talk about this, but as I've been wrestling all week long with how to communicate what the Scriptures teach about this, I, I just keep coming back to the simple truth. That here we have in 2 Timothy, it says the idea of, of entrusting people, of living life with other people to people, living life with other people as you give them the gospel. And remember, in Matthew chapter 28, I, I, I referenced that just a second ago. And it says, go therefore make disciples. And literally translated is, as you are going, make disciples. What is he saying there? What is, what, what is Matthew saying there? What is Matthew recording that Jesus is saying there? Jesus there tells us is that basically we are to make disciples as we live this Christian life. Now, the problem is, is that we tend to compartmentalize our lives. We tend to put things in the spiritual box, and we tend to put things in, in the work box. And, and, and particularly, men are really good at this. And you've probably heard this before. I'm sure this isn't original with me. But the difference between men and women, how they think, you know, uh, you know men, they're like a waffle. There's a little box for everything. And, you know, they, the boxes never touch. And, and, you know, that's it. Women, it's like a plate of spaghetti. Everything's connected. Um, you know, and there's some truth to that. That's, that's, that's generalizations, but there's some truth to that. But I think even in our spiritual lives, we tend to be more like the man brain. And that is that we have boxes for things. And we compartmentalize this. But what Jesus is saying in Matthew 28, he's saying that, listen, as you live your life, as you're going, make disciples. And that brings up several questions. Then it brings up questions such as, like, well, then how do we live our lives? And what do we, does that mean to every relationship? I think part of the problem is, is that we tend to think of making disciples or discipleship as primarily intellectual work. Whereas we, there's a certain amount of data dump that has to happen in order for someone to become a disciple. And so it's like, I, I, if I'm going to be involved in disciple making, I need to then be able to teach in a systematic way X, Y, and Z about theology. Or I need to be able to teach some nuances of Christology or pneumatology, ecclesiology or eschatology or soteriology or hamartology and all these different ologies about theology that, that you think, well, man, if I'm going to make a disciple, they have to have all this. We tend to think of discipleship or making disciples as primarily intellectual work, and I'm here to submit that, no, it is primarily relational work. It's sharing life with one another. 
life-touching life. It's, it's about you and the truths that you do know. You're passing it along, but not in the terms of an academic sense. I think that we tend to think of discipleship in terms of Bible studies or programs that need to be accomplished. And so when I say that our church needs to be, I have a culture of making disciples, I'm not saying that we need more programs to do it. Now, that doesn't mean we're never going to have a program like that. But what I'm saying is what I'm praying, what I'm earnestly praying for our church, and when I say a culture of disciple-making or making disciples, here's what I mean by that, is that you guys and me, because I'm part of all of us, this church, we're living life together, and we're, and we're pointing people to Christ. We're, we're sharing what we're learning. We're transparent with one another. And it's more of in the context of daily living rather than a program. And I think the reason why we tend to do, because we're not the only church that does this, think of it in terms of programs, it's, it's more of a Western way of thinking, honestly. If I'm going to teach you something, it's going to be more of a lecture format. It's going to be a classroom. You're going to sit there like you are, dutifully listening, you know, taking your notes, and I'm going to teach you, and then we're going to get up and we're going to leave. That's a very Western way of teaching. Whereas what Jesus had more in mind, he had more in line with the mind of, of how a rabbi would teach, and the rabbi would just kind of live life. Now, were there times of formal instruction? Absolutely. So there's nothing wrong with formal instruction. But if that's the only time that we're trying to make disciples is that we're trying to sit down and, 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 and have an instruction time with someone, there's no surprise why that's not going to be a very effective strategy. How many of you like to be sat down with and have someone give you a lecture one-on-one? And sit down and teach you something, like as if it's a formal classroom. No one likes that. It feels condescending, and people resist it. But also, there's also the, tens, the, the, the tension of then I feel like I need to have a, a, a leg up on you if I'm going to be able to help you in your spiritual walk. So there's a hierarchy. And that's not at all about making disciples. We don't see any this type of hierarchy. Now, there, of course, there's levels of maturity. I'm not going to argue that point. But as we're going, as we are living life, we are entrusted to do something. So we need to walk life with each other, empowered by the Spirit of God, like Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 teaches us. So let me give you, for instance, in this. Okay, so in our church, we have what's called the Benevolent Fund. Okay, and that's a great thing. And we need to have it. And let me tell you, just a little side plug here. I'm just so grateful for the deacons that we have. The deacons oversee the Benevolent Fund. So grateful because they, they are not stingy with that at all. Uh, every time uh, a need has come up that I've been aware of and I've approached the deacons about it, uh, they've always been like, yeah, we need to do this. And, and, and then often they'll bring ideas up and say, hey, what about this? So so, so grateful for their leadership of that. So grateful for the Benevolent Fund. However, here's, here's one thing that I was trying to think of a way to illustrate when I'm talking about daily living versus a program. You see, one of the things that I would love to see in our church, and maybe this is happening more than I realize because I don't know what happens in everyone's personal context, and that's fine. But what I would like to see is that we have a benevolent fund, but we also have individuals going to people and saying, hey, I know that times are tough for you right now. How can I walk this path with you? Hey, you know, I, I know that you're going through a really difficult time, or I know that you know, this is about your job maybe, or house, or relationships, or children, or whatever the case may be. I would love for people to come alongside and just say, hey, can I help you with this? Or what are the needs here? You see, 
the benevolent fund is great, and it's wonderful, and we've used it, and we're going to continue using it. But here's the, here, here's the slight disadvantage to it, is that it's anonymous, and it kind of has to be. You know, we don't want to, you know, publish, oh, and by the way, we helped this person with this person. We want to be respectful. But the problem is, is that it's, it's people give to it, and then that's it. And there's, there's no relationship there. And again, if you hear me saying we need to disband the benevolent fund, you're missing the point. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we need to have that, but we also need people to come and walk alongside people and say, how can I help you with this? How can I? And I know that, that, that we have pockets of that in our church. So I'm not saying it's completely absent in our church, but I do think it's something we can improve upon. Instead of asking you know, me and saying, hey, is someone doing something about so-and-so, maybe you should go to that person and say, hey, Spirit of God's put you in my heart. How can I be a blessing to you? How can I walk this journey with you? I think that is going to be a, a, great, um, a great way of building relationships with one another. I've had people give me, and, and I know the reason why they do it, and I applaud it, and I understand it. But I wonder if there's another way sometimes. I've had people give me a gift and say, I don't want anyone to know where this came from, but go give this to that person, and I do it, and I am so grateful for that person's generosity. But I wonder if sometimes, and I understand the reasons for it, but I wonder if sometimes if that person just went to that person and just said, hey, God put you in my heart, and, and I want to be a blessing to you, and I want to, I want to walk this journey with you. I wonder if that would increase our making discipleships and the relationships here And so what I'm saying is I think we need both. I think we need the formal benevolent fund type program, but then we also need the personal, spirit-led, individual relationship that comes from those things. And so the, the, this, this is just simply an illustration of the whole. You, you realize that, of course. This isn't a sermon about the benevolent fund of our church. This is about how we interact with one another. And so instead of only so or solely depending on the program, which is good, we should also have the individual connection because making disciples is relational work. But often we get very busy pursuing our own interests, safety, security, comfort, or whatnot, or my own individual time, that we don't take time to build relationships with one another and spend time with one another. One of the things that I think about when I think about our church is I think that we are just a group of busy people. I look at some of the schedules that are represented even in this room right now, and I think, I don't know how you keep up. I mean, we are just so busy. Now, if you know me at all, you know that I love technology. But one thing that technology has deceived us in is that it says that we could do our work shorter in a shorter amount of time. So then we'll have more time for ourselves or whatever we want to do. Well, really what technology has done is made us do more work in the same amount of time. Because we just add more and more and more. Not against technology, I use it all the time. But what I am saying is that what we need to do is we need to be focused on or be very conscious about how are we relating to one another? How are we getting involved in each other's lives? Are we doing that? Because making disciples is highly relational work. And so, how do you spend your time? Now, you say, well, are you saying then that I can't have hobbies or recreation or things like that. No, 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 no. I'm not saying it at all. But what I am saying is maybe, just maybe, we should be using those hobbies and recreation as bridges for making disciples. 
What if we used our passion for sports? What if we used our passion for the arts? What if we used whatever it is that drives you? And if you thought, okay, God, how can I use this desire of mine then to be a bridge to make disciples, whether through evangelism, of inviting people to become like Christ, or helping people in their personal walk with Christ? What is it that you find enjoyment of? What is it that you find uh, uh, great satisfaction in? What is it that you enjoy doing? I'm not asking you to give that up, but what I'm asking you to do is simply what Jesus asked you to do, and that is use it for his glory. Turn it and say, well, how can I, how can I use this for making disciples? Because now if you can't find a bridge, then maybe you do need to give it up. But I think that if we're created if we're creative and we pray and ask God and say, God, okay, I've got this passion about knitting or whatever. I don't know. Um, we tease Pastor Mike that he goes next door to the sows here all the time, and he says it's for their coffee. Um, I think he's just making his wife a Christmas gift or like a scarf or something. But you know, whatever it is, whatever our passion is, can we not ask God to say, lead me by your spirit to show how I can use us to make disciples? You see, making disciples is highly relational work, and we need to be intentional about the relationships. So what I think our greatest need here right now is not necessarily more opportunities or forums for Bible study, although that's not necessarily bad, and we have adult discipleship hour even for that. But what I think our greatest need right now is organic relationships for the purpose of helping each other stay on mission. Times of getting together and saying, hey, let's get together and let's discuss the sermon today. Or let's, let's get together and discuss this Bible passage and then how it applies to our lives and then how this can help us in, in, in stay on mission. And, 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 and let us, let us, let, let's get together and let's be praying with one another. I, I, you know, if I were to put a survey out there and say, how many of you want... This church to be church that glorifies God. I, I, would, I would bet my next paycheck that almost every person would say, absolutely, that's what I want. But if we're not praying for that, it's never going to happen. If we're not getting together and being transparent with one another and saying, God, please bring your spirit upon us in this church and do what only you can do. If we're not actively praying and consistently praying for that, this is never going to happen. We got to get together and we got to pray with one another and be involved with one another's lives and influence one another. It's highly relational. If we're going to be a church that has a culture of making disciples, we actually want to do, and this is going to be like, well, duh, but we actually need to want to spend time with each other. We got to be able to do that. You say, well, yeah, but have you looked around? You know, not everyone is, is, is the best. Or, or, you know, I just got some personality conflicts. Believe me, I get it. I get it. I, I understand. I understand that there's some times where people just don't mesh for whatever reason. But you know what I've also seen? I've seen the Spirit of God trump that time and time again. I've seen a person where I, I've just had a hard time with, but then God has worked in my heart, God's worked in their heart, and I enjoy being with that person because it's the Spirit of God at work. And so it's highly relational, but in order for us to understand that, we need to know that relationships are risky. You say, I don't know if I'm willing to take that risk. Well, we have to. You remember Barnabas? I, I don't want to take time and turn there, but remember Barnabas? Barnabas was a man who was the first person to 
really befriend Paul after his conversion. You read about Barnabas. Barnabas was a person that, w- that defended John Mark. Barnabas was a person that was committed to relationships. He was a man who said that this is worth it for the gospel's sake. He was willing to take risk. And so what I'm asking you to do, I'm asking you to be to take some risk. I'm saying take some risk with some relationships in our midst here and in the world. And, and will you get burned? Yes. You will. You will. Will there be pain? Absolutely. Will you be frustrated? Sure. Okay. You say, Jeremy, you're a lousy salesperson. Okay. But it's what God wants us to do. Because it's for eternal glory, not for temporal glory. And the thing that I've seen over time is that when you take risks for relationships, yeah, there's pain involved, but the Spirit of God coaches you through it. So it's, it's risky. But just, and I also think if we're going to, in relationship, if we're going to be a disciple-making culture, as I mentioned this, I think, a minute ago, we have to get rid of the hierarchy system. I think that's part of the thing that trips us up. Because I was trying to think of why do people not do this? And I think it's because some of the reasons people would give is they say, well, I don't think I know enough to be, to, to influence someone or help make disciples. I, I don't think I, I have enough Bible knowledge about this. I, I don't think I'm mature enough as a Christian. I, they're probably going to ask questions that I don't know, or they may know more about the Bible than I do. So I, I really can't, can't really you know, help someone in their spiritual walk. But again, that's thinking it in terms of a hierarchy, and that's, things, that's thinking of it in terms of, of a teacher-student. What if, what if we all just got together and we started realizing, wait a minute here, there's no hierarchy here. We're all disciples trying to become more like Jesus Christ, and we're helping each other out. Because if, we, if, if it truly was about a hierarchy system, then there's always going to be one person in the room that can't be taught. Because there's always going to be one person in the room that knows the most about the Bible, has the most theological training, has the most experience, or whatever the criteria that you put out there is. So what about that person? Can that person not learn or be discipled in that context? I don't think so. I think he can be. Or she can be. Because it's not about a hierarchy. It's about sharing with one another. Because we're all at different stages and things. And I can't tell you how many times I've gotten together with someone who I was mentoring or I was trying to help. And, and they shared with me something they'd read in their Bible that morning. And whatever truth I thought I was going to teach them in that moment, the Spirit of God used that to teach me. You know, I can't tell you how many counseling sessions I've been in where I'm the one that's supposed to be the one with the answers, you know, and, okay, here it is, and, and, you know, here's what the Bible says. But as I'm hearing myself speak, guess what's happening in my soul? God's convicted me and saying, hey, you know the answer here, but are you living it? can't tell you how many times where, you know, I'm with my daughter or my son, and it's, it's one of those parental instruction times, <laughs> okay? And I'm saying, you know, you don't, you shouldn't do this because X, Y, Z. And guess what's happening in my soul? Man, I do the exact same thing, just in a different way. So in that context, God's using that situation to minister to me and to help me in my discipleship. So I guess what I'm just pleading with us to do is forget the hierarchy. If that's the reason why you're not involved in relationships with other Christians because you think you're not as mature as the other person or you don't have anything to offer, that is a lie from the devil. And it's a distraction. It isn't about 
gaining a certain level of knowledge. It's about helping one another follow Jesus and push one another to follow Jesus. And you don't need a theological degree to do that. You don't need to have a knowledge of the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic. All you need is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the Bible. And you encourage one another to follow that. So making disciples is highly relational. Now, the reality is that we're influencing people whether we mean to or not. We're, we're part of a culture, and we promote that culture through our actions or even our inactions. And so our passions, our pursuits, our prayers, our, uh, our money, all these type of things, they really do influence those around us. So what I'm saying is that you do have a sphere of influence. Every one of you is influencing somebody right now. How are you influencing them? Use your relationship to the point of Jesus Christ. And so, if we're looking at the how of discipleship, it really is your relationships and making relationships with other people and, and living life with them. Simply walk through life with them and look to Jesus and point them to Jesus. But I also said making disciples, secondly, is spiritual work. Because, and this is the key, really, we cannot make disciples apart from the Holy Spirit's work. It just will not happen. We can have great relationships. Because some people are really good with that. They're really good with making relationships. They walk into a room and everyone's their friend right away. I, I, had, a, I had a friend in college. Uh, his name was Scott. And he was one of those guys where I never met anyone that did not like this guy. I mean, he just, he's just everyone liked him. I, I don't know if they always just felt bad for him or what, but I don't know what it was, but they just liked him, and he never had an enemy. And I would find myself in a situation where people would think that, you know, I was angry because of the way I looked at or something, and so then I found myself having to repair relationships. And here's Scott over there is, you know, he's making fun of people, and people, ah, you know. It's kind of like the difference of languages, you know. German, in German, you can say, I love you, and it sounds like you're angry, and in French, you can say, you know, I think you're the ugliest person ever, and I hate you. And people are like, oh, so beautiful, <laughs> you know. All right, okay. Yeah, that's like Scott and me, you know. So some people are really good at relationships. But, you know, apart from the Holy Spirit's working in those relationships, you're not going to make disciples. You're just going to have a lot of friends, a lot of acquaintances. And we're not called to have a lot of friends. We're called to make disciples. We're not called to be popular. We're called to make disciples. And let me tell you, it's a struggle. I get it. The Holy Spirit is something that we typically in Baptist churches don't talk about a lot. In fact, one author has written a book on the Holy Spirit and called it The Forgotten God because I think we're afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit. But the reality is the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. He's a person of the Trinity that we are indebted to. And the fact that Jesus isn't on this earth is because the Holy Spirit is here. Jesus says, if I stay, the Holy Spirit's not going to come. And so when the Holy Spirit comes, I'm going away so that he will be in you. Jesus was saying, look, I'm here. I'm, I, I'm in an incarnate body right now, but I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm going to go away. I'm going to send the Spirit. That way there, there's the, the presence of God isn't limited to one location. It's going to be in every believer. And so the Spirit of God, I mean, is what reason why we're saved we're, is the reason why that we know the Scriptures were, the Scriptures are illumined. Uh, uh, the Bible teaches that, that, that he, if you understand the Scriptures, it's because the Spirit of God is helping you do that. But also our ability and our motivation to live a Christian life comes from the Spirit's influence in your life. So do you, you ever wonder why some Christians can get up in the morning and ready to charge the world and make disciples, and other Christians, they just don't want to do it at all? It's the Spirit of, work, Spirit of God's work in their life. 
Let me read you Ezekiel. If you're taking notes, just write the reference down. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. He says this. The scriptures say this. God says, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what God is saying that he's going to do. And this is what happened after Jesus lived on this earth. He died. He rose again. Then he went and what is called the ascension. The spirit of God came. And then this is what he does is he causes us to walk in his statutes. He motivates us. I had you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for a reason. Because the, the pressure that we felt yesterday or last week was that we are entrusted to do something. We are entrusted with the gospel. Now, when I was studying that, I felt this weight. I don't know about you. I felt this weight. I felt this, this like this. It's almost like the, 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 I don't know if you've ever had a dream where you're standing in front of people and everything, every, every head turns and looks at you and is waiting for your next, next move or what you're going to say. And it's almost paralyzing or whatever. And everyone's looking to, like the whole world is saying, how is this person going to respond? I kind of felt that way. And I said, man, this gospel's been entrusted to me. And it's almost like, how in the world can I do this? How in the world can I, can I, can I do this in a way that honors God? And then, and then I knew that I had to do it. But as I began to study the scriptures even more, it's just amazing to see that Paul, in his writing in 2 Timothy, had already started to answer that question. In chapter 1, look at verse 12. I'm going to pick up in the, in the middle part of it when it says, but I'm not ashamed. Chapter 1, 2 Timothy, verse 12 says this. He says, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I believed, and I am convinced that he, that God, the one he believes in, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You see that? What's been entrusted to him, that God, through his spirit, is guarding in our hearts. Verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit. He says, this is how you do this. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so we feel this weight of responsibility. Like how in the world can I, I mean, this, this, this gospel's been entrusted to me and I gotta give it to other people. How in the world can I do that day in and day out? How can I use every relationship for that? I don't have the energy for it. I don't have the knowledge for it. I don't have the motivation for it. And quite frankly, I just don't like people. How can I do this? By the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. By the Holy Spirit. And so making disciples is spiritual work, and it's something that we should be going to all the time. And so Paul, later on, he tells us, be filled with the Spirit of God. So let me ask you this. How often do you pray for the filling of the Spirit? How often do you pray to be led by the Spirit? How often do you pray and say, God, the decisions that I make today, may they be led by your Spirit and not by my own? How often do we look at relationships and say, what are you doing with this relationship, God? What are you prompting me to do? You see, all of life has to be led by the Spirit of Christ if we're going to be a disciple-making culture. The Holy Spirit is pretty powerful. I don't know if you've, you've studied the Scriptures at all, but if you have, you'll see that the Spirit of God is pretty powerful. According to Titus chapter 3, he renews us. So you say, man, I, I just can't do this in my own strength. I don't have the personality to make disciples. Well, 
He'll renew you. That's what Titus chapter 3 teaches us. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, it says this, For God gives not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. You say, I'm afraid. I'm nervous. Uh, I don't know what they're going to say. I, I don't know how to do this. Spirit gives us a spirit of power, not of fear. He gives us courage. Last Wednesday when we were praying together, Pastor Mike had us look through Acts chapter 5, and I, I was just amazed to, to read through this, that, that text again, and I won't take time to, to turn there, but I'll just summarize it by this and saying that, you know, Peter and John had been, they healed someone, and they were doing all these great works, and I mean, it just starts in chapter 4 and, and all this. Then they're thrown in prison because the people, the Sadducees, they're jealous. And so they throw them in prison trying to intimidate them, and so they leave them there all night long. But then the Spirit of God directs an angel to come and, and open the gates and or the prison doors, and they leave. And they tell them, you go preach now. You go preach now. Now, think about this for a minute. Here you are. You're in prison. You don't know if you're going to be executed. For preaching the gospel, you get miraculously set free, and then they say, "Go into the temple and preach." Now, if 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 it were me, I'm thinking, "Well, man, this is going to be a vicious cycle. I'm going to be back in prison again. Maybe I should go someplace else." But they obey. Why? Because they follow the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God caused them to do it. They go. People, they go to the, so the officials come to the jail, and they're looking. They're saying, "What? What happened?" These the guards are standing right outside. They're like. We were here all night. We promised. We don't know what happened. And so then they say, all right. Well, well then the word comes to them. and says, hey, those guys that were in jail, they're preaching. And so they go. Now, it's interesting. The whole time, the whole time, this was meant to intimidate these apostles. This whole thing was meant to make them fearful so that they wouldn't preach the gospel anymore. There's an interesting phrase in Acts chapter 5. It says that they go to him. The, the Sadducees come to the, the apostles, and they, they, they were afraid. Not the, the, the apostles, the Sadducees were afraid that they were going to get stoned. I find that really interesting that the power of the Spirit of God can take a situation that seems hopeless and totally turn it upside down and totally turn it the opposite way. That the ones who were trying to inflict fear, the ones who were trying to be intimidated, they ended up being afraid for their own lives because of what God had done for them. The Spirit of God is powerful. There's a book that Pastor Mike has told me about that he's read, and, and we were talking about it, and there's a story about a small group in there. The small group's meeting, and one group, and, and if you want the full details, you'll probably have to get, get it from Pastor Mike, but here's my, what I remember of it. One of the members of the group, they said, you know, we love to serve God in some way, but we are so burdened by debt right now that we're working extra, every bit of our money is going to pay off this debt. And so would you pray that we'll be able to do that? And so, you know, I think that what they were expecting was for people to say, yeah, we'll pray about that. But one other person in the group said, well, how much do you owe? So they told him. They said, well, why don't we pay that debt for you? And so the small group paid the debt to free them 
so they can serve God. And another person who was financially minded in the church said, I'll meet with you so that we can set up a budget so that you know, there's some things that, that maybe there's some principles that I can help you with as you move forward in this. And so it was this group, this small group of believers that did this monumental task. Now, why did they do that, Spirit of God? I remember when I was going into seventh grade, we got a new youth pastor at our church. And Wednesday nights, we had that first Wednesday night, we had nine teenagers show up. And I remember the youth pastor. Now, again, we're worlds apart theologically in some ways, but that man has taught me more about serving God than many, many other people. And so he, he said, I remember, I, he so believed in prayer and so believed in the power of the Spirit of God. He said this. He said, look, we're going to pray. We need to reach more teenagers for Christ. He says, here's what we're going to do. Anyone who wants to come up every Saturday morning, we're going to pray. And so of the nine, I think about seven of us or so, met every Saturday morning, and we prayed. We prayed that God would bring people to the youth group and that we would see teens saved and we'd see the youth group grow. And a year to the date later on, on Wednesday nights, we had over 100 kids every Wednesday night. Now, why was that? Was it because my youth pastor was this dynamic guy and a great speaker? No, he really wasn't. I believe it was because we prayed. And we recognized that it wasn't up to us. It was up to the Spirit of God to do that. We've had moments in our church history here recently where we've seen the Spirit of God do some wonderful things with people's health. And I'm telling you, that's just a tip of the iceberg of what the Spirit of God can do here. And do you believe that God has great things for us? Then we need to pray. If we're, if we're going to be a church that makes disciples, we've got to be ones that is praying together because this is spiritual work. This isn't about getting a good program. This isn't about personality. This is about spiritual work. But we're told not to quench the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. One author I've been reading says this. He says, we easily mistake the presence of the Spirit for our own conscience. Or enlightenment reason. What he's saying is, he says, sometimes we confuse our own reasoning for what the Spirit of God is doing. When we make this mistake, we easily dismiss the prompting of the Spirit as mere rational options. Now, let me give you, for instance, what he means by that. I need to explain that, I think. Sometimes an idea comes into our minds, and instead of seeing it as a Spirit prompting to do something, we look at it as an option for us to consider. So, for instance, I see someone, maybe they're begging, maybe they whatever, and I think I should give them something. But then I think, well, wait a minute here. Maybe not, because they'll probably squander it. Or you're at home, husbands, and you think, I should probably do the dishes for my wife. Wait a minute. I did them yesterday. Okay. All right. So we look at options instead of saying, no, that's the spirit of God leading me to serve my wife in that way and, and serve my family in this way. We look at it instead of the spirit of God leading me, we start entering into a dialogue about it. We start saying, well, wait a minute here. We start weighing the pros and cons. Well, I did this yesterday, so I don't think I need to do this today. And, you know, I don't want her getting too comfortable with me doing the dishes because then she'll expect it. Uh, You know, all these type of things, you know. And then that's the solution. You just buy a dishwasher. But the, the, the point is, 
is that we, we often take what the Spirit's leading us to do and we enter into a dialogue about it as if it were just an option. How many times do we rationalize away the opportunity to communicate the gospel? We think, man, they need to know about Christ. And we think, oh, they're in a hurry. Or we think of, well, man, she'll think I'm weird. Or I don't even know that person. What are they going to say? You know, these rational objections didn't stop Philip with the Ethiopian, Peter with the Jews, or Paul with strangers. You see, I think we need to, instead of getting into a dialogue about the reason, I think we need to enter a dialogue with the Spirit of God. And say, are you leading me to do this? How should I do this? Is this the right time for me to do this, Spirit of God? What should I be doing this? What's the best way for me to bring this up? I think that's what we need. You see, we tend to regulate our lives through clocks and calendars, budgets, smartphones, routines, and rhythms. And when our plans get interrupted, we usually respond with irritation and impatience. But what if? Well, what if you planned on your plans being interrupted by the Spirit of God? What if you saw them as divine appointments to dispense grace? You see, we, we like to regulate our lives. But what if when we're interrupted, we say, no, that's, that's the work of the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is what will make us a disciple-making church. We've got to be sensitive to what the Spirit's teaching us. So let's not rationalize away. Let's enter into a conversation with the Spirit as we live this life. Now this leads us to the final observation, that making disciples a sacrificial work. Go to Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 1. I will only spend just a few minutes here. Um, the bulk of the message was intentionally the first two points. Colossians chapter 1. I didn't feel like I could teach a, a sermon on how to make disciples without bringing up the fact that it is hard work. It's sacrificial work. Colossians 1 verse 28 says, Him we proclaim, warming, warming, <laughs> warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. How does he powerfully work that energy? And well, it's through the Spirit of God's work in his life. But he toils and he struggles with everything he's got. For what purpose? To see people grow in their discipleship, to be mature in Christ. It's difficult. If God's asking you, and I believe He is, if He's asking you, He's asking me to make disciples, that is difficult work. If we're to be Spirit-led, that doesn't mean it's always into easy territory. I realize that. If you're taking notes, just write down this reference, Luke 4. In Luke 4, we have the account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He was fasting for 40 days. He was weak. He was tired. The enemy came and tempted him. Tempted him with food. Tempted him with fame. Tempted him with uh, world power and glory. All these things. He tempted, tempted him for 40 days. Now the interesting part of that story to me is actually in the first part. It says when Jesus, being led of the Spirit... To be tempted. 
The Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of testing and trial. If we are going to obey Christ and we're going to say that we are going to be a church that makes disciples, it is going to be hard work. And it is going to take lots of energy and we're not always going to see the results. But if we can keep our eyes on the eternal prize, we can keep going. Let me close with this. In February, it will be four years since I came here. And... um, we love it here. And, you know, one thing, though, not though, um, I really quickly realized I had a plan, okay? When I, before I came here, I kind of had a plan of how I was going to lead and some of the things I thought we needed to do as a church. But it only took, a, man, maybe two, three months or so for me to realize I had read it wrong and I needed to change my leadership, even my leadership style, I thought I needed to change. And so um, I've been trying to describe, you know, what the first four years have been like. I remember telling you it's going to take three to five years before I become the pastor of this church. Maybe some of you remember me saying that. And the first three years are going to be the hardest. Now, I'm the prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but that came true, okay? And I feel like someone asked me just the other day, they said, how's it going at the church? I said, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm just now becoming the pastor of the church. And, and, and it's wonderful. And we're so grateful to be there. So as I've been looking back in, 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 at the last four years and looking ahead to the future of you know, our ministry here. Here's, how, here, here's the analogy that I've been using. The first few years was kind of like a farmer going into a farm. He gets a land, and maybe he has dreams of it producing all sorts of harvest. But then he gets there and he realizes, wait a minute here. We're not ready to throw seed in the ground. we got work to do. And so what does a farmer do? Now, I'm not a farmer, but I know this, that there's, sometimes there's stumps and there's trees and there's stones that just got to be pulled out of that field. And I feel like that's what we've been working on as a church. For the last four years, pulling stone out, pulling stumps out, getting things ready for the plant the seeds and see what God's going to do. And so, so as I've been thinking about that, I think, you know, this is exactly what we're doing. We've been going through, we've been seeing a stone here, and, and it takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy, and, and so we start pulling these things out, and, and we see a stump, and we pull that out. Now, the thing about tree roots is that they don't just go straight down, they go out, and so it affects a lot of uh, land around it, so you've got to be careful about that. And so you're, you're working, you're working hard, and you're sweating, and you're, and you're pulling stumps and stones out, stumps and stones out, and then at the end of the day, you get back and you're like, man, we have been working hard. Let me turn around and see what's happened. And you turn around and guess what you see? You see a field with a bunch of holes in it. Okay, That's what you see. It doesn't look very good. It looks like, man, we haven't made any progress at all. And we're, we're never going to get to where we're going to be. No, but in order for us to have harvest, the stumps and stones had to be pulled out. And then when we get to the point where we start putting seed in the ground and the, 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 the land gets ready and we start putting the seed in the ground, and then what do we have to do? Once you put the seed in the ground, you got to kind of keep the weeds away. you got to keep the pest away. You're constantly protecting that seed and constantly working on that. But most importantly, you're waiting. You're waiting. The inexperienced farmer the one who's doing this in second grade for his class, he will go and he will dig up the seed every two days to see if anything's happening. And you have me? Dig it up. 
Now, I don't know much about farming, but I don't think you're going to get much of a harvest if you keep digging the seed up, right? So what happens is you got to kind of let it sit there. you got to kind of watch for things around you. you got to protect it. you got to let the sun come down. you got the rain come down. But you got to wait. And then one day, then one day, you start seeing little things sprout up. Now, you, at that point, you can do the celebration dance. You can say, hey, we've got our, we, we've got our growth. We've got what we've been waiting for. We did all those stumps and those stones and everything. And now I see the little shoot coming out of the ground. Yes, and my job is done. That's the inexperienced farmer. No, they know that the harvest is coming. And it's going to come and it's going to be greater than you ever imagined. Now, I don't know if I'll be around long enough to see the full harvest here. And I don't know if you're going to be around long enough. I don't know how long it's going to be. But what I do know, stumps and stones have been coming out. And I do know we're starting to see little shoots come up. Let's be patient. Let's make disciples. Because guess what? The more people we have working in that field, the more stumps and stones are gone, the more the ground is tended, the more, the more it's, the seeds are cared for, the better the harvest. So if you only have one or two professionally paid farmers to take care of the stumps and stones in the field, it's going to be a long road. But if you have an influx of workers into that field, we're going to see harvest that the Spirit of God is going to bring that will take our breath away. So, we need people to make disciples. Because when we make disciples, stumps and stones go, the seed is cared for, God's Spirit has free reign, and we don't quench the Spirit. So, let's be a church that makes disciples. Let's pray. Father, I pray I pray that we would see great things by your Spirit. Making disciples is hard work. You've asked us to sacrifice because we are not living for this world. We're living for eternity. And forgive us that we get so distracted and our eyes get so caught up in other things. Lord's relational work, I pray that we would love people. I pray that we'd be willing to help other people. But Father, this is spiritual work that we cannot do apart from you. And so on behalf of my brothers and my sisters here, I, I plead I plead that your spirit have free reign here and that we would be a church that makes disciples. What brings us together is you, and we're grateful for that. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.